Hey, I'm Jesse. We're in Nehemiah chapter six. The bad guys are at it again. They're using incomplete information in Nehemiah chapter six. According to verse one, they'd heard that the whole wall was complete. It wasn't, there was still some work to be done on the doors. Nonetheless, they are reaching out to Nehemiah. Come, let's meet together in the villages of the Ono Valley. They were planning to harm me. That's verse two. Look at Nehemiah's response in verse three. So I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing important work and cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same proposal and I gave them the same reply. Sanballat sent me this same message a fifth time by his aide who had an open letter in his hand. All right, we're gonna get to that, but I wanna talk about the, I wanna talk about the four times that Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem are trying to get Nehemiah to come down from the wall, leave his work behind, and step away from what he's trying to do. They had, they had intentions to harm him. Nehemiah saw straight through it. He did not fall for it, and he didn't step away from what God wanted him to do. We don't see Nehemiah slam the bad guys that often. We do see him ask that God return their insults back on their own heads, which when you think about it, isn't necessarily, it's not vindictive, it's kind of fair, right? He's not, he's not asking like, God, kill them all. I mean, there were times in the imprecatory Psalms when David would pray that. I mean, like he would get really extreme. There, there's some ministry to be had in the imprecatory Psalms in their extremity like their extreme nature rather, and that David would say stuff like, God, kill this man and his wife and his kids. And when you read it, it's like, good grief, David. It's not that bad. Or you compare your own affliction to people who have been slamming you, slandering you, harming you, affecting you economically or professionally, emotionally, even physically. And you look at that and you look at David's prayer and you're like, good grief, I don't want him, I don't, I don't want, his family to be hurt. I don't want, I mean, like, good grief, David, that's pretty extreme. I'm not that bad off. And that's where the ministry, to me, comes from the imprecatory Psalms. When you read them and you're like, wow, I've got it pretty bad here, but it's not that bad. <laughs> How many of you have ever, ever had a bad day and then you turn on the news and you see what's happening in Ukraine? You're like, ooh, okay. Had a rough day today. There are people out there who are suffering more. It's not that there's a shortage of grace to go around, not diminishing your suffering, but it is good to zoom out and get perspective. I once had a student um, at my church in Orlando whose family was extremely wealthy, and she was just utterly convinced that her life was hell on earth, and she would describe it this way. She would use that word so liberally as to describe her life. She was dropped off in a Bentley, by the way. And I remember talking with her about it and, and she had no concept of what true suffering actually was. This is not to speak disparagingly of all the wealthy people, okay? I'm just talking about this one anecdotal story that bears resemblance to this. She was convinced that her life was truly marked with absolute suffering. And I could not convince her otherwise. I, I was trying to affirm her heart because I understood the way she feels, she feels genuinely but what she lacks is perspective. And that's, that's part of youth ministry, right? That's part of it. I remember what it was like when I was a teenager. And if I went through something that broke my teenage heart, 
At the time, it felt like the end of the world. Now, it wasn't actually, but it felt that way. And so that's part of ministering sometimes in that context is reflecting the emotion and, and, and validating it. But then there was something, it can only go so far if that emotion isn't legitimate, if it's based on the delusion that like I'm suffering more than anybody right now, that maybe should be corrected. I spoke with mom and dad. I was like, we got a team and they are going, uh, they're heading to Burundi, like small country in Africa bordering on Rwanda. Remember the Don Cheadle movie, Hotel Rwanda? People fled to Burundi. We had a team going there. I was like, sign her up for Burundi. When she comes back, you'll have a different daughter. Sure enough, she got to go encounter some legitimate suffering, some actual suffering. And today she is addicted to mission trips and that's all that she wants to do. It's a beautiful thing to behold. And she also was able to come home and get a different perspective. It wasn't that her emotions were illegitimate. It's that her narrative was delusional. She was convinced like I'm suffering more than anyone ever has ever, you know, uh, now, bring me another Perrier water. <laughs> really, that needed to be corrected. In this instance, in this case, we see Nehemiah being disparaged over and over again. And he doesn't really go after them the way that David does in the imprecatory Psalms. He prays that their own insults would come back down on their heads. Meaning, look, what you said of me may become true of you. You suffer the consequences of what you have uh, what you've attempted to afflict me with. The majority, the vast majority of Nehemiah's approach to his detractors and his enemies, as they're labeled in this text, is to just press on with the ministry that he's got to do. Four different times. They try to get him to come down from the wall. Come, let's meet together in the villages of the Ono Valley. It seems like a legitimate invitation. It seems nice. Come, let's just meet together. Come on, let's just... Let's just talk this out, all right? Let's let's come together in these villages, and you know, let's just let's just let's be ecumenical about this thing. Let's let's just discuss what's happening. And he can't come down. Am I like what he's doing is too important? He's laboring in the Lord. He had a proper perspective. Like I'm either going to go step into your snake pit and just let you guys all bite. Like, I know that you're trying to harm me. I know that you're just gonna disparage me. You're gonna to try to discourage me from this. They're even, it's, things are gonna get even worse than this later on in the text. But he knows that what he's gotta do is more important. Christian, what you have to do is more important. You don't have to go into the snake pit. You're under no obligation to walk right in front of the firing squad. You can just say no and go right back to doing ministry. That's what Nehemiah did. That's what Nehemiah did. Now, his enemies were incredibly persistent. So what is the takeaway from this text? Emulate this aspect of Nehemiah. You don't have to get into the fray. You don't have to step in front of the firing squad. You're under zero obligation to go put yourself in front of the kangaroo court. You don't have to do what your enemies want you to do. You keep on doing what the Lord wants you to do because it's incredibly, incredibly important. And when we do that, our suffering, our affliction, the slander, the pain that we experience because of our interpersonal reaction, interactions that just, our, our interactions, interactions with other people that go poorly, they suddenly fall into perspective. Our work in the Lord is just too important to go step into the fray, get into the sandbox, and just bicker with people who don't have our best interests at heart. Don't take the bait. Don't fall for the decoy. The enemy will do anything to get you off track. Our mission, Redemption Church, is too 
important. Don't worry about the bickering. You focus on what the Lord has called you to do. Right now, that's revival in the Seattle area. That's what we're praying for. And that's what we're evangelizing unto.